Welcome to Drink Beer, Think Beer, the podcast that gets to the bottom of every pint. I'm John Hall. And strap in, because we're going on a ride. Deep into flavor, our senses, and what Randy Mosher calls your tasting brain. First, a quick programming note. I'm going to be at Jack's Abbey for a live audience recording of this show on August 17th at 6 p.m. So if you're listening on download day, that's tomorrow. If you're listening the day after download day, that's today, August 17th. Anyway, it's going to feature a panel of Massachusetts brewers, and we're going to even have some recipes out of the Craft Brewery Cookbook, which will also be for sale that day. It's also available wherever fine books are sold. So if you are in Massachusetts, come join me, Andy Crouch. And so many more on August 17th at Jack's Abbey in Framingham, Massachusetts at 6 o'clock for, again, a live audience recording of Drink Beer, Think Beer. There's a 100% chance we're going to be talking about smoked beer. So if you like Rauk beer, uh, join this Week in Rauk beer on Facebook by searching the group or follow us on Twitter and Instagram or I guess X and Instagram at TWRaukBeer. And you can also check out the All About Beer website merch page for official glassware and some t-shirts regarding this week in Rauk Beer. Uh, speaking of our website, go visit it. It's allaboutbeer.com. You can there, you can find original articles, reviews, news, insights, and other podcasts. You can listen to shows like Brewer to Brewer and the All About Beer podcast simply by searching All About Beer wherever you listen to shows. This show and all of the work we do, it's supported by you. So please go visit patreon.com slash allaboutbeer. A few bucks goes a long way to help keep the content fresh and to fund writers, photographers, creators, and editors. If you'd like to learn more about advertising on this show, on the website, or any of our other podcasts, please just email info at allaboutbeer.com. And if you plan on being in Colorado in a few weeks for the Great American Beer Festival, you also need to check out the Denver Rare Beer Tasting. It's going to happen on Friday, September 22nd, and it's bringing together 64 of America's best craft breweries, all for a great cause, the Pints for Prostates campaign. The beer list is incredible. It's packed with rare, exotic, and vintage beers you won't find anywhere else. These are legendary beers the brewers hold back just for the Denver Rare Beer Tasting. It's a bucket list event for both beer fans and for brewers. And you can get a look at the beer list and find more information, including tickets, at pintsforprostates.org. All-inclusive tickets are just 200 bucks and include unlimited beer samples, a great buffet lunch, t-shirt, tasting glass, and a program. Importantly, the money raised goes to the fight against prostate cancer, and it also includes a free health screening before the event. It's a simple blood test that checks for common health issues that might just save your life. That's the Denver Rare Beer Tasting, drinking beer and saving lives. No matter how long you've been around beer, thinking about beer, drinking beer, listening about or talking about beer, there's always something new to learn. And this is especially true when you're hanging around Randy Mosher. He's the celebrated writer behind the classic book, Tasting Beer, as well as so many others. He's a talented brewer and recipe developer. Last month, he was in Orlando, giving the keynote address at the Florida Guild Conference. It's a stellar event that's put on by now former director, Sean Norquist. Over the course of 90 minutes, Mosher walked attendees through the sensory systems. He sat down with me afterwards for a conversation that picked up on that talk and the info he plans to put into his forthcoming book, currently titled Your Tasting Brain, How It Works and How to Use It. 
Taste, smell, and mouthfeel represent fully half of our sensory systems, he says, but we barely notice them most of the time. Using the simple act of tasting to slice through the new science in this book, which he hopes he'll publish next year, it brings the science to life and illuminates just how complex, finely tuned, and superbly functional these senses are. So school's in session. Professor Mosher is ready to teach. What was, what was the term that you were using on your... On your chemo site. sensationalist. Chemo sensationalist. What I struggle to find a, a term, you know. Part of the one of the things about tasting is it's not the right word. Yeah. Because taste is a specific sense that the tasting is so much more, you know. But we do not have a word for it. And you know, so I fooled around with titles that were around like chemo chemo sense and chemo sensing and things like that. But like my publisher's like, nobody knows what that is. Right. The scientists know, you know, but it's like, yeah, they're right. You know? So, so it's like, I struggle to kind of, I don't like, I don't want to just say taster or tasting expert. That doesn't, that doesn't. So chemo sensationalist was just something I came up with. That's kind of fun. I like and that. Like, yeah. It's sort of a play. So we'll see my, my, I have a friend that's developing some marketing and website for me. And he's like, Oh, I like that. Okay. We can go with that. <laughs> Because it's ownable, you know? Yeah. I, I feel like it has that also, like, a carnival barker type thing. Like, exactly. come see the chemo sensationalist. Like like, yeah. There's a sort of positive, enthusiastic yes. aspect about it. Yeah. Because I, I thought about, like, chemo sensationist, but the sensational, that's more of a play on words. And yeah. And it's kind of a, like, it is sensational. It is amazing, you know? And I want to I convey that, You having one of the, if not the most popular beer book in print right now, um, that's, that, not that's not a homebrewing book. That's not a homebrewing book, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but that uses the word tasting in there. If you're saying taste isn't the right word, how do we square that? Well, we don't. Because okay. we just don't. <laughs> well, it's like the genderless. It's like it's, we don't have a, we don't have a sing, single genderless term for human beings besides it. And that's clearly not appropriate. Yeah. So we can use they. But then that trips up your brain because it's like it's not two of them. There's only one, you know, so it's just like we just don't have the word. And I don't know whether other languages do. Some surely must. Yeah. But um, so, you know, we're stuck with it. Everybody kind of knows what it is. That's like in through the looking glass. Humpty Dumpty's like, well, I used let words mean what I tell them to mean and not what they think they want to mean on their own. You know, so. Yeah. You brought up in your keynote today. um uh, that language is a particular challenge. Definitely. And when we're starting right off the word with the word taste or tasting, like that's the first challenge, but that it, it didn't strike me as that should be a problem because I was like, Oh sure. I know what that is. And then you started talking and then obviously I don't know what it is. So when we're starting off at the base level, that the very basic word that we use to describe all of these things is problematic. Everything else that follows must be as well. It's only problematic to the extent that people don't agree on a sort of a random meaning for it. You know, yes, technically it's not the right word, Yeah. but it's the one we have. And so it, when you say, I'm gonna to talk to you about tasting, yeah. everybody knows what you're talking about. It's not just like tongue taste, it's everything. Yeah. So it's like, we agree on that. It's an, It's kind of a, linguistic niggling point you know that like yeah it isn't the right word but but it's what we have so we use it so I'm, I'm happy to use it but so what are the challenges of language then well how do you speak about the ineffable 
right? <laughs> yeah. You know, and it's like I, like I said in the talk, olfaction particularly streams like a fire hose of raw sensory data into your limbic system, unlike any other sense that gets processed a little bit, goes through the other senses, go through the thalamus, go through mul sometimes multiple stages of processing like in vision. Yeah. And, but, but this is like squirts that raw data in, in, in highly emotional, like it speaks its own language, you know, because we have these two memory systems. We have sensory memory and we have um, semantic or lexical memory that's more about words and ideas and categorizations and things like that, where the sensory memories are the ones that are those ones that come when you smell something and all of a sudden, you know, they're autobiographical. All of a sudden you're at grandma's house sure. and feeling a certain way and you've got a picture and you know who's there. I mean, it's like a whole thing. You just plop down in it. Yeah. You know? It's startling. In it. and, and so you're trying to take that and connect that somehow with the other vocabulary system with or with the other memory system which is in a completely different part of your brain i mean the hippocampus runs them both but the content is different right yeah so like that's the challenge it's like we're not structured for it right and we're structured for as i said move towards it move away from it that's it like bacteria do that the things that came before bacteria and before that they all did that and so our function's the same you know do i eat it do I have sex with it? Yeah. Do I run away from it? You know, that, that, those are the choices. So it's not a, I mean, when you understand what the purpose of it is, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. But it's still hard because we want to do that, you know. And so you just have to learn them. You learn them one by, one, by one. You know, you, you become familiar in any given discipline like wine or beer or whatever it is. You learn, you, you learn the things that you need to pay attention to that other people agree you need to pay attention to. And you make your peace with those things on your own terms, what words you would describe, how they feel to you, you know, and then, then as you become more in the professional world, you learn what the professional terms are and you connect those to those words. But keep your internal ones. Right. And start with the internal ones for sure. Because if you try and start with the professional ones, it, it doesn't work so well. Right. You know, because the words can make it even harder to identify the things than if you don't have words and you're just looking for them without kind of being specified as a as a particular word I, you used the word emotional before and it, it, it kind of got me thinking and then you brought up you know memories of grandma's house and all of these other things i think a lot of the times when i think about tasting in a judging setting or in a professional setting or something it's it's normally sterile environments and it, all you're left with is just what's right in front of you and mm -hmm. then trying to pick that apart but that emotional aspect of being in a certain place or transporting you to a particular place. Um, I know so much of what you're, you're focused on is scientific based right now, but where does the emotional come in or does it have to be removed when you're, build, when, when you're building that foundation? You do not want to remove it. Okay. You want to listen to it, right? Because it's talking to you. Yeah. It's trying to tell you things, right? So if you find yourself at grandma's house, you, you, you know, you smell something that triggers the smell. You're a candy shop. It's a great example. You look around the candy shop. What could I be smelling? You know, like nine out of 10 times it's banana runts. Sure. Right. Cause that's, that's isoamyl acetate. That is like one of the most prominent fermentation chemicals there is, Yeah. you know, so that's the one. And it's like art, you know, it's an artificial flavoring they use in cheap candy 
doesn't smells banana like, but bananas are yeah. much more complex. But but still, like that emotion, that memory, that feeling. I know I'm a kid. I'm in a candy store. I'm happy. Uh, you know, circus peanuts. Yeah. Or banana runs for younger gen. You know, they more know that one than the circus peanuts. So it's like whatever word you know but but you trace it back and you can make those connections so you if you do not want to ignore your emotion because that's how your brain that's super important that's how your brain processes you know? yeah that's the function in a lot of ways that's the function of it and words are like something we've invented very recently to lay on top of it so it's like it's no wonder language is tough it's just not part of our system we force it on it yeah we can make it work you know sometimes really well but how how is how has language evolved then, in the time that you've been doing this, and or even just in, what, yeah in terms of tasting yes language? in terms of yeah well I mean I don't think the language has evolved all that much certainly there are the you know as as craft brewing for example has come to the fore uh, that's a whole new co cohort of people that have to learn the vocabulary and everything and it certainly has changed the beer lexicon because when Morton Mylgaard did that famous flavor wheel back in the 1970s he yeah. was working for Stroh's and every beer in America was was a macro beer yeah I think pretty much more or less one. yeah yeah and um, so that's what that lexicon was based on so it didn't really include things like roasted grains or Britannomyces or fruit or you know so so the, the the vocabulary has expanded greatly and that's the vocabulary that people in the craft business or hobby or pursuit whatever they whatever your status is those are the things you, you know it's a broader range of things of interest yeah um how can we and i'm speaking from like a consumer standpoint now mm -hmm. be better at either being a taster, um, understanding what we're tasting, or involving the lexicon in, in our own minds? Well, the first thing is just to do it. Okay. Right? Because drinking and tasting are, they're similar activities, but they are not the same in any way. Right. Right? They, liquid goes in your mouth. That's the similarity. But, but it's really that intentionality, right? Because, because the chemical senses, especially aroma, it's completely fueled on uh, attention. And, you know, they put 50,000 times as much of the chemical in natural gas to make it stink. Right. When you're not, so you can smell it when you're not looking for it compared to if you're actually looking for it. Right. 50,000 times that, different. That mercaptan, that's yeah. How much it, that mercaptan. Yeah. That's how much that shuts down. You know, that's how much, because all of our senses are built to ignore the background and focus on the foreground. Right? To ignore things in our environment that are static uninteresting don't bother paying attention to it and focusing on the things that are different yeah like you can you know you can look out in a field and a quarter mile away and you can see a tiny little bird flying along that field guess why because it's moving right right and everything else is sort of like goes away and it's like wow what's that bird it's just a dot you know tiny little edge of your ability to see yeah but you see it because it's moving and that attracts there's parts in your visual processing system that look for Look for motion, you know, and it's the same with smell. It's like what's different, what's new. That's why we habituate because it stays, you know, the brain only has so much computing power. Yeah. It's just limited. And so to waste it on things that 
are not changing, it, it's just inefficient. You know, and the brain needs all the all the computing power it has for the things it needs to do and not waste anything. So that's another, but like one of the big lessons of the biology of this is how efficiently were put together, you know, how these systems are designed to minimize processing, to get the maximum benefit about our, about our, out of our li limited mental resources. Yeah. It's pretty amazing, actually. But that just, in, in a lot of ways, that makes me think that the work then of the beer makers or, you know, the, the flavor makers, mm -hmm. the um, need to put in that work so that when it gets to the end user, we're not necessarily thinking about the layers, we're just thinking about it, it, the, the, the hard work has been done before it gets to us. Yeah, ideally. Yeah. I mean, and you, and as I said in the talk, it, there's sort of two points of view that are really important to people in the, in, especially in the industry. And one is the point of view from understanding themselves and how they can get the most out of their interactions with the beers they make. And the other is really having that both an empathy and an understanding for the people who are going to be consuming the beers, understanding what the psych what their psychology is, what they need, and how do you sell an idea like a fruit beer or something? How do you sell an idea so that in a way that doesn't promise too much but frames their expectation in a way that makes them likely to respond to whatever you've put in it to try and do that? Yeah. You know, so it's a delicate dance. You don't want to oversell it. You don't want to undersell it. You don't want to list every ingredient if you don't really want people to pull them out one by one. Yeah. Because that's like we've had a lot of you know, thoughts, thoughts about that. And like a lot of the things we do at our brewery, we do not to have the individual things jump out, but to blend together and kind of add to something else like like a peach beer or something like that that we're doing we don't want to we list them sort of around the corner on the side like if you want to know it's in here but it's not in the ttb description it's just natural flavors or whatever it is yeah or botanicals or whatever the whatever we're using in it um so you brought up peach and we've had a couple of conversations uh over the last 24 hours where you've brought up this peach beer that mm -hmm. forbidden root has mm -hmm. um i think when i think of like oh it's going to be a peach beer it's going to be like okay here's peaches, mm -hmm. that kind of mm -hmm. thing. But th those layers, what did you find worked to help that flavor present, but then also, I, I guess like what you were just saying. Explain that was like, the beer. Yeah. 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 yeah so, so peaches are very difficult because the main chemical in there, they call the fuzzy peach chemical is not stable during fermentation. Right. So generally that's why peach beers are generally pretty disappointing, you know, because the flavor just is not, it just, it goes away and it's like one chemical is very specific is very peachy and yeast does not generate it it actually tears it up so i think it's oxidation but it goes away so so you end up with a sort of like eh, it's fruity kind of blah kind of more apricot but not even that much that it's yeah you lose that chemical so we just we, we thought there was a good opportunity because people love peaches I don't know that anybody ever thought about making one like we are thinking about it. Yeah. But my I, my idea was to basically take, look at what constitutes peach flavor, peach aroma, and pick out those facets and reproduce, like basically add things that will re 
replace one or like add to one or like multiple ones of those. So we ended up with about eight botanicals. So we have chamomile in there, which has a general fruitiness. We have orris root, which is an iris, a Florentine iris root that has a real profound base note lingering fruitiness that just goes on and on and on. It's used as a fixative in perfumes to make the flavor, make the aromas linger more because it's very like um, uh, synergistic with other things. There's some mahleb, which is a Middle Eastern cherry pit that has a sort of a um, 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 amaretto type of uh, um, bitter almond type of flavor. Benzaldehyde's okay. a chemical. Uh, they're sour orange, so a little bit terpene, bright, sharp, orangey fruitiness. Uh, there's some jasmine, which has this sort of funky, kind of funky perfume about it. You know, jasmine's like the, the, one of the chemicals in jasmine is actually in large amounts, it goes a little fecal. Oh. Yeah, okay. but it's like very much used in perfumery and they really love yeah, it. Yeah. It's like a little, just a little dirtiness. It kind of adds a lot of animal character and a lot of depth. We don't have that amount of it in it, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's that's not a huge sweet. selling point no, for beer. No, but it is but really, yeah. that's interesting because that chemical, like you get too much of it and then you go that way. Sure. You know, and um, I'm trying to think what else we have in there. Those are the main ones. And, but, but they're very, they're minuscule quantities. I mean, we have like a, a half an ounce of Mahleb in a 10 barrel batch, which is- And that's enough to do nothing. it. Yeah. Yeah, but we, we, we do a lot of little tabletop blends up. We blend hundred mils with pipetters and I make these calibrated tinctures. You know, you just put one part herb, 10 parts alcohol, soak them, filter them, and then start dosing. And you yeah. can do the math, you know, to scale up. And we got the numbers, it's like, this can't be right. Let's do the math again. Yeah. It's like, yeah, that's right. That's it. And, and we, we always go too far. So we, so we know what, what too much is and we pull back to like the last point. And that was it, you know, now that we do, uh, there's one chemical in there that is peachy. That's a Chinese tree flower called sweet osmanthus. Okay. And they make a tree or make a tea out of it. It's a very interesting plant. It has a lot of connections with lunar mythology and things like that. And Chinese is kind of an important thing in China. Uh, but not that well known in the in the U.S. Yeah. But it, it's very peachy, and so we put that in post fermentation. Put all the, well, we put that in post fermentation, uh, so that it doesn't go through fermentation. So we we retain that peachiness. So it re, it puts some back, and we do use a little bit of uh, aroma top note too, uh, because the, you just almost almost have to with with most fruits because fermentation strips a lot of stuff out, and you yeah. have to come. We don't. They're not really good to use. It's like oh, let's squirt this in and now we have a peach beer, you know, because it tastes thin and artificial and not really right. Um, and the other thing about fruit beers is that our reference on fruit is 100% eating a fruit. Right. And so that's all the acidity, all the juice, all the texture, the mouthfeel, the creaminess, the sharpness, whatever it is. And so you have, when you're making one, you have to get, get in color too, you have to get all those things as close as you can get to what that experiences but only using 10% fruit <coughs> so it's they're they're I think they're really fun to put yeah. together but they're tricky they take you, you can throw them together or you can be really thoughtful about them so we try and be thoughtful about what we do and it, it's been a while since I've had forbidden root beers but I, I I always remembered the ones that I had of having that intention that there was some real thought that that went in there and 
it's going to sound like I'm disparaging, and I probably am on some levels, but when there's brewers that are just going to a Costco and buying wholesale candy and throwing it in their beer so that it tastes like that beer, or you know, they're just blunting with a certain coffee, or they're using they're using done ingredients to try to enhance the flavor of a beer. Those can be fun, and sometimes they do taste like you know s'mores or skittles or or sure. whatever, and that's that's fun in its own way. But it's also you're then just left with, okay, this is a beer that tastes like it's supposed to, uh, or like something that's already been done, where there is this exploration that exists in the beers that you're making and yeah, that you're well, trying the, the, to, like yeah. A Skittles beer, it's not a fruit beer, it's a Skittles Right. Beer, right, so that's fine, you know, make a Skittles beer. I, don't, I think it's fun that people feel able to play around and that there's other people that respond to that yeah. you know seven the Seven Eleven beers you know people like throwing <laughs> twinkies in whatever yeah. you know it's like fine but you know some of those things you know and, and i think this is one thing i see this kind of a weakness of all the flavored malt beverages like seltzers and things is that they just have they're formulated molecule by molecule they don't have the profundity that you get out of a natural fermentation and using natural fruit and all that, you get a, there's so much more depth to those things that I think, and if you look at the history of all of those, uh, you know, cool wine coolers from Bartles and James and Zima and all those things, there's a, there's a, like an oscillation of those on about a 10 year cycle. There's like five, two years up, two years down, two years up, two years down, you know, and then there's like a, a slight holding period for a couple of years. So the, you know, it's every, they're generally younger, newer drinkers for whom those flavors are really appealing because they're sort of coming out, they're coming off of candy and soda pop and moving into alcohol and that's a really logical place to go with them. And, but still, I think that the fact that they kind of constantly cycle up and down shows me anyway, I may be wrong about this, but I see those are formulated, um, formulated products that are super intentional to do a specific task and there's nothing there that's designed to be profound or deep or layered or you can come back to again time and time and time again yeah you know so i i think that they're never going to rule the world there's always a market for them people like those big fruit flavors and that crisp hit and something they don't have to think about and there it is and you know i, I have no problem with them but but they i don't think they're any they've never been sustainable over a long period of time with any generation of drinkers. I don't think they will be this time, but you know, it could be wrong. We'll see. Yeah. But there are those folks that just in, and based on sales numbers for some of those seltzers and some of those other things, there's folks who just want the blunt instrument or they just want, they they want to be led. But are they going to want to do that five years from now? Sure. You know, are they going to like, is that something they're going to grow out of or just keep going their whole lives with that? I mean, I don't know. I don't have an answer for that. Yeah. Um, but as you think about the the future of the craft space um, when it comes to beer and the intentionality of the recipes that could be made, I mean we've seen advancements in individual ingredients. Um, you know we're seeing a return to classic styles um, that are done with modern technology for cleaner ferments mm-hmm. and better tasting beer that we've ever had before. Mm-hmm. Um, but the future of craft as intentional beverages like what, what you were describing in creating that peach beer um, is there a path for that should there be a path for that where it's not just 
Twinkies or, hey, we're going to triple dry hop this at you know, 13 pounds per barrel or, or whatever. You know, some of the more gimmicky type stuff or the more bold stuff. Can the future of craft be nuanced? Can the future of craft be, I don't know, in intentional flavor? Well, it can be nuanced because we're human beings. We're sure. complicated, yeah. right? Um, but, you know, honestly, what, there's, there's things as a brewery that you do to get attention and then there's what you sell. Yeah. Right? So, so the breweries that do Imperial Stouts, like how much barrelage is that really? You know? So most of them also make a Pilsner or something. Sure. Right? And the reputation and the noise, you know, because now we're, we're in a super concentrated media environment where there's this huge crowd of people in a very small space on untapped and rape beer and all those kinds of things. And there's a, you, can, you need to make noise in that space. You need to attract some attention. And doing goofy things is a really good way to get attention. You know, it's like the, you know, it's like the jackass movie. You know, let's do some dumbass thing and it'll be kind of fun. Yeah. And it is fun and it's super cool. And it gets attention. But is that the beer you're going to really sell the most of? Maybe. Yeah. Maybe more like that's going to make like, people really love you and like, oh, what else they got? You know, I've had enough of this. Let me let me see what their regular beer is, right. you know, and I'll try that. Must be good because they did this crazy thing. Like nothing, you know. That's just how you have to you, you have to stand for something. You have to be something. You have to do, you know. I don't want I don't want to do too crazy things, but it's you got to get beers and get people talking. Yeah, you know. So when you decide it's time to make a new beer, uh, where does your creativity start? Well, it, you know, we have a team, so we're team-oriented. I get involved in the more complicated projects that are set on long, longer time horizons. I mean, in the case of the Peach, I'd been kind of kicking this idea around for a while, and then we're sitting in our distributor saying, you guys really need another flanker for this to go along with the strawberry. And it's like, well, I've been working on this Peach, and they're like, go with that. Yeah. So then I take it to the brew team. It's like, okay, I'm coming in on Thursday. I'm bringing my, I'm bringing my tinctures. We're going to sit down and like t try this out you know and you let me know you know as a group we'll decide like what we like how we think this works and blend we blend up base beers together we do you know all kind of like get a lot of work a lot of work done pretty quickly on this yeah. so and and then sometimes like the strawberry basil hefeweizen that was just something our brewer did early on and it's like damn that's good yeah and we tweaked it a little bit since then but not too much you know it's basically what we what we started out with yeah and so sometimes it's just a whim that everybody likes and kind of keep going and you know there's no real rhyme or reason i did see peaches as a space that not many people are doing well mm -hmm. as but also a flavor that people really like yeah so i saw and strawberry same deal Strawberry's also quite challenging it's oh yeah very complicated flavor uh it's not really stable in fermentation there's a lot of it's expensive there's a lot of issues it's our most expensive beer to make you know, so outside of the hazies, you know, that are heavily dry hopped. Sure. But, uh, but so, you know, it, it's like just kind of can be anything. You know, sometimes just somebody has a crazy idea, brews a little batch, like, yeah, it was good. Let's like, and we got to have a, you know, we have three rotating pairs of seasonals around the year. Usually one lager, one something else. Lager with a twist of some kind, you know, we have a, a toasted marshmallow. German Schwartz beer okay. that comes out around the end of the year or first of the year. Um, that's kind of our winter beer. Sure. And it's, you know, it's like six and a half percent. It's not super strong, but it's really it has a little bit of oak in it to give it a little more depth to the oh, vanilla. Nice. And, uh, you know, pretty lovely and people like it. And that was, you know, 
and we sort of wrote, we, we, we kind of try and find the ones that people respond to and make more of those, try a new one every, you know, every now and then and see, like, can we beat the one we had, you know, can we, can we find a little more market with this? Uh, because it's a dance, you know, it's you and your drinkers. And yeah. They tell you what they want. You know, so we, we have to offer them things. Yeah, you have to meet them like. where they want to be yeah, met. We have yeah. to try and make things that we think they'll like, and then sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. That's the, you know, that's the business. Yeah. You brought up hazies, and I'm trying to formulate this question in a, in a, in a meaningful way, and I'm not sure I'm going to be able to, but <laughs> as the focus has, in the last few years, gone to just pure numbers of how many pounds per barrel of hops are going in to hazies. Um, and the flavors and the aromas that you get off of that. But it, it, it's typically by weight or by volume uh, meant to elicit, you know, shock or uh, meant to elicit, a, 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 you know, a reason that fans or, or people should buy it. It's like, wow, there's so much hops in this that it's got to be good kind of thing. Because otherwise, why would you do it? Have you seen what's worked for you with hazies, right? Because I, I'm sure that you're not just saying, okay, we're going to get 10 pounds per barrel and, and be done with it. I imagine that you're putting some thought into those beers. Into some, maybe not. 10 pounds like, per barrel, you're yeah. losing half your beer. Sure. At 10 pounds per barrel, it's yeah. like, it's insanely, it's a lot. You know, we, I'm exaggerating a little bit, yeah, I, no, although it's we, being done. We did but a triple yeah. IPA that had eight. Okay. You know, because it's like, how far can we push this? Yeah. And it was really good, but it was like, man, it was hard to drink because it was 10% and, you know, all that hops and we, and we had a terrible yield because... Soak up a lot of beer, and if yeah. you don't have some kind of centrifuge equipment or some way, some way of really getting spinning the the beer out of that, you, you you just waste a lot. So they're very inefficient, and you have to charge a lot because you know not only you're paying for stuff, but yeah, cheap. the more yeah. you add, the less additional flavor you get. You know, diminishing returns and solubility and all that stuff. You know, we find that um, I think we're probably somewhere around three pounds per barrel for a lot of ours for the normal strength ones maybe a little more for doubles it's not that it's not crazy yeah you know but that's plenty to to give you really if you can choose the hops really well and don't overspend you know like figure out the hop combinations are really where it's at you know because you can really create a wonderful aroma profile mixing three hops that are neat, none of them like super wonderful on their own you always got to have a marquee hop on the label because people know they know citra they know mosaic, mosaic yeah they know galaxy so there's a few of those that, that just from consumers don't know all the hops but they know a few and they know those are the ones they like or they think those are the ones they like so you know we're cognizant of that too uh but uh you know we you know, I think the other things is like you really have to pay attention to mouthfeel, you, you know, the, the water treatment, uh, all that stuff's super important because getting that creaminess and then laying the hops on top. We really like the style. We were one of the first breweries in Chicago jumped on that. So I know there's a lot of I know a lot of brewers are like, ah, oh, those hazy IPAs. I hate those. You know, it's like, yeah, I, I, they suit me fine. I, I'm a wheat beer guy. They're wheat beers. You know, they're wheat <laughs> beers or they're oat beers or they're rye beers or both. You know, so I, 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 you know, and I'm not a stickler for di tradition. I, I think it's interesting. Yeah. I think there's a perp a reason there. I think there's a place for it, but I would hate to be thinking like a German when I'm brewing beer, you know, that the only permissive, like the, the taxation forms in Germany, that's a checkbox. You can make a Pilsner, you can make a Hellas. Like you can't make a beer that's in between styles in Germany and Bavaria right. anyway. It's not, it's just like, there's no checkbox. So the government's like, I don't know how to even 
deal with this, you know? So, um, that, you, know, you know, I like to be kind of an iconoclast, but I'm also like to be purposeful and not just do goofy stuff for its own sake. So. Yeah. Well, it was interesting to hear you say when you were making that, uh, the triple of how far can you push it? Where, where's the limit? Where is the, wh what is that? taste aroma mouthfeel wise for you like what where does it go from hey this is nice and where we want it to be to that's the line and oh wow now we're over the line and this is not where i want it to be like what for you what is it it's it's tough to say i mean i generally like most hazies that i drink i think they're pretty good and the levels are right i haven't really gotten any that i think are kind of too much okay i'm not a big fan of the hot burn yeah. You know, there's a chemical, I forget what the name of it is. Uh, they've identified it recently, but there's a particular uh, uh, sesquiterpene that has that like pepper burn and it goes away after about a week or two, right? But I know we got people in the market that they like that burn because yeah. they know it means it's super fresh. But for us, it's actually going to be better in a week when that burn subsides. I don't really need pepper with my hops. Right. But it's just like that's a personal thing, you know. But that is a thing that people know that it's fresh when that burn goes, when that, you have that uh, spiciness. But it does, yeah. it does fade. So we like them out once that's gone. That, like for me, that's a little too young when, when you have a lot of pepper. Uh, I just, I think it's like I was talking about being, things being con uh, consonant. And pepper and a hoppy beer is just like a out. It's just like two things that don't go together. Yeah. You know, so the brain is like, there's some dissonance there, which is sort of like, mm, I don't know about that. I like pepper. Right. You know, but. But I don't like it here. I don't yeah. like it with a hoppy beer. It's like all that creaminess, all that like lovely, lush, fruity, citrusy, terpene flavors. Then you throw pepper in it. It's just like, not the right thing. Yeah. You know? As. You brought up off flavors before, even hot burn, and then we were talking about uh, you were talking about in your in your speech this morning, mm -hmm. um, acetaldehyde and the way yeah. that that people associate it with green apple. Yeah, and it got me sort of thinking about how there are certain generations of drinkers where we don't want diacetyl, we don't want acetaldehyde. Um, that these known off flavors and these easily explainable off flavors mm -hmm. um, have gotten to the point where there are now some beer makers that are purposefully putting it in there. You know, we, we get, uh, yeah, are there? Yeah, well, sure. I mean, um, I, it's one of the AB products actually just did, uh, a green apple flavored, uh, like bush light or something like that. Okay. But are and they using acid? No, 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 they're, they're not, probably but, not used, yeah. but, but it's, it's, and, and I've seen examples in the past. I know, uh, folks have done, um, like oyster stouts where, uh, there's diacetyl in it so that it's like butter with oyster, like cooked oysters or, you know, lobster or things like that. It, yeah. it, it, there, there's purposeful things like, is there, there's certain things that we're told to avoid or to look for or to shun. Um, but is that always fair? Well, it's context dependent. Sure. Right? So, you know, if you get, if you get diacetyl in a dark beer, it's pastry. Like for me, if I, if I smell a dark beer and my brain immediately goes to baked goods, like sweet dessert, like cake or strudel or something, that for me is like, oh, let me smell again. I'm looking for diacetyl now because I smell this cake. I smell this pastry smell. And yeah, that's that's. So, the con so in a pilsner, it smells like butter. Sure. In a pastry, it smells like butter 
in a cake or i'm sorry in a in a dark beer it smells like butter in a cake or a cookie or something like that yeah you know which is different because now you have all this maillard stuff those are creating that configural perception those two things are blending into one thing your brain knows really well yeah and the two parts kind of go away you know so but you learn those little tricks right so when 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 you're like that's one thing i just look for when i when i get to think when my brain goes to cake it's like I better check myself. That's probably diacetyl in a dark beer. And sure enough, that's what it is. So you learn, like, that's what you learn over experience. What to expect, what to react to, what to, when your brain presents a certain image to you, to be able to listen to it and know what it's trying to say. Because it's not going to spit out the word necessarily. It's going to paint you a picture. Yeah. You know? Um, by the time this episode airs, you'll have been home and have hit send on the latest manuscript, the latest book uh, to your publisher. Yes, thank God. <laughs> the biggest project of my life, honestly, outside of the breweries, you know, it, it was enormous effort. So to get folks excited, what is this new book? What is this eventual, we, we will see it in print hopefully sometime next year. As far as I know, it is called Your Tasting Brain how it works, and how to use it. So it's basically a deep dive on all kinds of sensory, chem chemical sensory, taste, mouthfeel, aroma, flavor, which is a synthetic mix of all three of those things, um, with, a, with just going through the science. How does your nose work? How does, your, how does mouthfeel work? How does taste work? How does, how, do, how, do, how does your brain put them together? How are we different genetically? Um, you know, what do we, how do we organize? Is there such a thing as a rainbow of smell? You know, they make wheels of smell, yeah. but is there a universal one even possible? You know, can you make one that doesn't have big discontinuities in it? And generally no, but you can make one for anything. And you can sit down at your table and make little index cards of like hop flavors or whatever and lay them on the table. And it's like, okay, this is more like this than it is like this. So I'll put this here. And you, like, you, at some point, your brain is really good at that kind of thing. Your brain's really, we're masterful at categorization. Yeah. So that, laying that down is really not, like, you'd think it'd be super challenging. And you get, there's some places where you have gaps or overlaps, or do I put this here or this here, you know. But it's really, like, not that, like, our brains are really good at that, you know. So, and, but there's a lot of research doing, going on, that's, like, trying to understand the complete landscape of flavor and how, how all those things relate to each other, you know, and looking at the receptor, chemical interactions, looking at linguistic analysis, looking at um, like every different aspect of what it is. It's a lot of very advanced statistical and artificial intelligence type of um, processing to identify clusters and separate differences and create networks you know, to kind of network diagrams of flavors and show or putting things on sort of X, Y things. Identif identify what they call principal components. Yeah. You know, and they'll put a, a principal component one on one axis and one on the other. With smell, there's two, the two main ones. One is uh, hedonic okay. and one is edible. Okay. Right. And there's some overlap there. Yeah. But they're not the same. Exactly. Yeah. You know, so there's that like perfume is hedonically pleasant but it's not edible right so there's so and then sometimes the machine spits back something like a like a dimension like rope you know because it's a it's machine learning you know and yeah. it sort of like spits out stuff that 
it makes sense to itself, but not to us. So yeah. you, know, you get these weird things. But that's all. That's really fascinating. And then like. Who are you right now? You know, what are, like, what are, who are you genetically? Who are you in terms of your sex? Who are you in terms of your experience? How you feeling? You know, what's your health status? Even meds, there's a lot of medications that have really noticeable effects on, on smell and taste. Hmm. Some bitter medicines are so bitter that the amount of that chemical that gets in your bloodstream, the blood flowing through your receptor cells on your tongue trigger bitterness. Huh. Isn't that crazy? It is. Because some of those drugs are monstrously bitter. And even in small quantities in like parts, low parts per million or whatever the quantities are in your bloodstream, it's still enough to give you a weird taste in your mouth just from the blood, that bitter compound circulating in your blood. So it's like kind of blew me away when I read that. I want to keep talking about the book, but I'm wondering <laughs> in your research as you've been leading up to it, because when our receptors change, um, you brought up COVID uh, during your talk before mm -hmm. and how there was the loss of, of taste and smell that some people went through mm -hmm. or things were changed. Ha ha have you seen any early studies on the potential longevity of some of those folks that were affected? Uh, you know, I haven't plowed through all the science on that. The general gist of it is not everybody's affected seems to be to more affect taste a smell than taste uh the problem is you sort of burn out of those receptors and you have to wait like they grow back normally about every two weeks okay. if you damage that tissue it may take a little longer for those to grow back uh, and they don't grow back exactly in the same place that they grew before yeah so they tend to present your brain with a somewhat different pattern and so you get the smell back right away but it's kind of scrambled right so you have to like smell an orange this is an orange. I know what an orange should smell like. You have to get your, teach your brain that pattern. And they actually do training, both for, for people with COVID, but also people with Parkinson's and, and other kinds of dementia, which also have olfactory loss. And, you know, you get an orange and some mint and some chocolate and uh, potato chips, and you, you smell those things three or four times a day. Yeah. And consciously smelling, paying attention, you know, and over time that, that builds you back up. And uh, it, it, coffee and chocolate are particular issues. You know, there's a, some sulfur chemical in there that we're super sensitive to, hmm. that they don't really know what receptor it is, but they know that like think this is probably what's happening, that that one gets really scrambled in it and it really causes a lot of problems because it makes, makes um, food smell like not edible food. You know, like it smells, it smell like literally like crap okay and so it's you know that's a, something to work through but you can recover from most of that i i assume there's some people that don't yeah but that those are probably people with maybe have underlying health conditions had a really bad case had long covid I, I, again i haven't I, I looked up enough to kind of give people a general idea yeah but it wasn't that wasn't the topic of the book so i only i only went so far with that sure uh, but there's definitely a lot of science on covid oh yeah um Going into writing this book, I, I imagine you felt fairly well suited to take on a project like this. I, I, you've been studying this for a long time. Uh, you know the people in the space. You know the, the questions to ask. You, you, you've invested in the science of it all. Um, but then also as a journalist, you know, you're, you're asking questions and going down rabbit holes and finding yourself in places that you never probably imagined when you first started this book and never in a million years yeah 
I mean, which is great because I love things like that. I love discovering. I'm a treasure hunter, you know, by nature. I love to go to flea markets. I love to find, I just like to find things, you know, and this is like finding. And, you know, I mean, I think my one trepidation as we go into peer review and editing is that I'll get, you know, scientists saying, well, who is this guy to be writing this book? This is my area. You know, but really I think, I'm the kind of person that needs to write this book because first of all, no scientist is gonna take three or four years out of their career to learn all these other disciplines and read all those papers and yeah. get up to speed because science is very siloed. People have their one you know, chemical or one physiological process or whatever it is, they're very focused on that and that's hard. And the academic world is viciously competitive and that's a, that's a tough world and you can't just like, like you could take a sabbatical but that's like, couple months yeah it's not enough to write a book you know and they you're not going to get up to speed and also you know i'm ha i have one foot in and one foot out right i have one foot in this kind of commercial brewing world and as a writer i'm really cog i'm really aware of what my readers want to know and need to know i think and i have always been interested in science and i think i'm have a fair ability to take out of the science what I think is important to put it in perspective to make sure people understand the ideas I mean there's still a lot of chemical names in this book sure. you know and I tell people early on in the book that's like if you've ever like read a Shakespeare play that first couple of scenes in that Shakespeare play you have no idea where you are right. you, they're talking funny <laughs> the names are weird you don't know who anybody is and at some point uh, by about uh, by about uh, scene three it starts to click. So like, stick with me. I'm gonna talk science. I'm not dumbing it down because some of these things you can't really dumb down. They, they are what they are. Right. You know, the, the hippocampus is the hippocampus. You can't call it like the memory thing. Right. You know, and it would just be stupid. So I gotta use the terminology, you know. But, uh, and we'll get, you know, we'll see what my publisher thinks once we get into editorial. If, if it's, it's parts are a little too geeky for what they think the market will bear, then we'll have to deal with that conversation but yeah I tried to make it as straightforward as possible but some of this stuff is really complicated and that's what's cool about it when you understand like what's really going on in the olfactory bulb it, it's just this amazing little universe the size of your little end of your little finger that all this stuff's happening in that turns chemistry into meaning yeah you know that's what it does um no I like that I, I, and 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 this just isn't I think people in this space at least will uh, hear your name and a book and they're going to assume that this is another beer book, but this is, this is not really a beer book. No, not at all. I mean, I talk about all fermented beverages. I mean, it, you know, the one other kind of like, point I got to chapter 11 and it's like, or yeah, uh, tw 10. And I'm like, oh, I got to write about wine now. <laughs> I like wine, you know, sure. but I'm like a beer guy. What do I write about wine? Like, what is this? What, should, like, what can I give to people that's really new that, about wine that they didn't know? It's like, okay, well, I started asking questions, like, what's the difference between a smell of a red wine and a white wine? That's yeah. I'm like, I never heard that question answered. Yeah, no, before, I'm stumped. Right? And you yeah. know what's different about them is not the things you can smell, but it's the things in there that you can't smell. Right, so what I mean by that is there's a, the, the wine itself they call a matrix, right? So these are non-volatile matrix components. So that is like wood components, yeah. alcohol, things like that. They're not the smell parts, they're the non-smell parts. But those chemicals in a red wine with a lot of oaky compounds 
and ethanol, higher ethanol, yeah. those hold on to molecules preferentially depending upon their water solubility, solubility or lack thereof. And so there are molecules being held onto in a red wine that in a white wine are free to evaporate, right? And this is one of the reasons that uh, non-alcoholic beer tastes so weird because without alcohol as a solvent, those chemicals that are super, super malty, which are more or less like oil or alcohol soluble molecules, they're, they're, they come out of the glass way out of proportion to what a normal beer would do. Yeah. And there's no easy way to fix that. I mean, they all, the process also strips out a lot of esters and other things. They can add those back, but they can't really. So, so NA beers generally have a real weird, worty, malty kind of character that's sort of like, it's, it's not pleasant over the long run. No. And that's why. Yeah. So it's this idea of like, they call it aroma release. So aroma release really depends on what compounds are in that that are holding on to it, you know? It's like, okay, now I know, you know, yeah. now I know. And uh, I hadn't thought about the NA, cause I'm drinking a lot of NAs these days or I'm trying to, and mm -hmm. there's certain ones that I like mm -hmm. versus ones that I have a, a, a struggle with. And mm -hmm. the ones that I generally like are the lighter ones that just are supposed to mimic like Heineken or Guinness or, yeah. and it's usually the larger companies as opposed to, yeah. They have the technology, sure. right? That's not a, I mean, those are very hard to make and, and a lot, having a lot of research, a uh, big research department and a lot of sophisticated equipment to do that, to do the testing and do all like, th that's something that craft beer, you can make, they can make an NA, they sell those of that equipment, but to really do one well is, is I think really super challenging. Yeah. Is there, as you were thinking about the, the, the book and, and the NA space, because there is a lot of conversation um, around it, is there work being done to try to mitigate some of those issues or to rein them in or to, that you've come across? I would assume that there is, yeah. but my, my other assumption would be that those are highly proprietary sure. and not out there in the, the university in the published paper kind of world. Yeah. You know, there may be some. I didn't really specifically look at it. Um, I, you know, I got enough to say, like, you know why they taste weird? This is why they taste weird. You know, but beyond that, it's like I'm not really, um, I don't know what, what everybody's doing. But you can bet the big guys are. Yeah. There's a lot of money at stake in it. And, uh, you know, those aren't going away anytime soon. And uh, if they can make them better, they should. But it's, it's a tough problem because it's not, it's sort of like those chemicals are going to be in there because they're in malt. You know, um, yeah, yeah. So I don't know. What is the what's the challenge that you'd like to put out to drinkers these days, either professional beer makers or just folks who enjoy drinking beer, um, when it comes to experiencing taste or becoming a better taster? What's the what's the challenge? Just do it. Okay. You know, I mean, it's really because it's so much driven by attention. Um, just pay attention, you know, well, I mean, it's easy to say, right? But to like to actually sit down with a piece of paper and write it, like taste, you can use a little tasting sheet. They sell journals. I've got stuff that I've published, you know, you can get on my website or whatever. Um, you can use a BJCP sheet or a GABF sheet. It doesn't really matter. They're all, they all more or less do the same thing. But to have some structured checklist to go through, uh, aroma, taste, aftertaste, mouthfeel, uh, overall style related, if you're into that, um, you know, but, and I always tell people like the act of 
writing with your hand is a muscle memory that's psych, psycho, you know, that's basically psychomotor activity that records that somewhere deep in your inner being. And then you read those words. That's another processing modality that goes through vision into a language area that doesn't go to smell. Yeah. And, and so now you're creating multiple traces of memory and activity in your brain to reinforce these things. And so even if you like crumple it up and throw it away, you're better off for doing it, right? Because you have the intentionality and staying on task till you fill the sheet out instead of just getting distracted with your phone or whatever it is. Yeah. And, and then also you've, you've created some stronger uh, memory traces by this intentional act and writing and reading and, you know, all of that. So. So that's the main thing. You Just know? do it. And there's training. You yeah. know, I think everybody should be judging homebrew. I tell that to beer distributors. I, you want to be a, you want to know beer, judge homebrew. Because you're going to find it all there. Yeah. You know, some, you're going to find really great beers. You're going to find beers with problems. Right. It's a great setting. People are really always looking for judges, judge county fairs, state fairs, stuff like that. They're desperate for judges always. Or if you don't, you don't have confidence as a judge, go and help steward. And then you can kind of watch the process, help people out. They usually let the stewards kind of taste along. It's like, oh, this is really good when you should taste this. And, you know, so it's a sort of a little bit of an apprenticeship. Uh, for a while yeah until you take the test or whatever but generally you know clubs especially are looking for you can't like waltz into the gabf and start no. judging that but but you, there's places to get started and and you gotta like that is a that's you need a setting like that to understand your own strengths and weaknesses too because we're all a little different we all have a little bit of superpower we all have a bit of things that we're just not that um acute at and so you need to know if you're like not sensitive to diacetyl, you want to know that, Yeah. you know, especially if you're a brewer. But if you're out, you know, writing reviews on stuff and you, you know, you want to know, or if you're a super taste, super taster on iron or something that like nobody else gets and you're doing reviews, Yeah. it's good to know that you're like a little, like you're super sensitive and you don't want to slam people for doing things that you're really kind of the only person that's, that's going to get it. Yeah. You know? So that's, it's just like kind of knowing yourself, which is like the, the like that's always just a great thing in life self-awareness knowing your strengths your weaknesses that's like why wouldn't anybody want to do that yeah i've been asking folks on the show for a while now um the premise is there there's a television show called the good place and in Mm -hmm. the final season they introduce a concept of a green door where the characters can walk through a door and be anywhere doing whatever they'd like to be doing Mm-hmm. And so if we had a green door on our plane of existence and this conversation ended and you could walk through it and be at any pub or any brewery anywhere in the world, where would you want to go? Who would you like to be with? And what would you like to be drinking? Wow. Someplace new. Okay. With people I don't know that well. With beers, I don't know that well, you know, and that's the thing about like I've been really fortunate to have people like invite me to far off places to come judge beer or give a talk and like had some really amazing experiences in Brazil, you know, that like and I I wouldn't have ever like for me, it's the novelty and it's the newness and the like, I mean, I live within about two miles of the Hop Leaf in Chicago. Yeah. World famous bar. It is one of my favorite all time beerless beerless and all the planet and the bar's great too oh yeah it's good it's like just a wonderful place it's been around forever uh the guy does a wonderful job so that like what's my favorite beer list pretty much the hop leaf and i'm really fortunate i'm just 
10 minutes away. Yeah. You know, so that's a super bonus. That's an embarrassment. Yeah, that's, 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 I'm jealous of that. That's yeah. an embarrassment of riches. Yeah. But I also like my own beers. I love drinking the beers that I'm involved with and I yeah. get to participate in formulating and managing and those are really fun. I mean, so it's really like, I don't have a, like, uh, plop me down in Belgium. I'll go anywhere. Yeah. You know? That would be great. And I, you know, I haven't, I haven't done a lot of serious beer travel and tourism because I'm married. We like to go to places together. Yep. She'll like Belgium's fine, no problem. They got chocolate, they got lace, they got there's and she likes beer. Yeah. So there's stuff, but I don't like I don't want to like go off and do Oktoberfest by myself. Sure. I know you're going. I'm going, and I'm yeah. Jealous, okay, well. But I but I but I don't We got you know. a spot in the tent for you. <laughs> but but uh so you know I, I uh it's it's a passion, but it's not like beer tourism, and it's not an all-consuming passion. Right. I'm really interested in culture, and people, and cuisine, and like every history and all that stuff. Beer's just one piece of that. So I won't organize a trip around beer. Yeah. Entirely, because there's so much else. Like, oh I sure. Like to go to the grocery store. Yeah. In Italy or wherever. Like what oh, kind of yeah. toothpaste do they have over there? Oh, that's always you know, a that fun kind thing of stuff to do. For me yeah. Is super fun. And, and so, like, you can get too focused on certain things, I think, to the exclusion of all others. Or, you know, when people travel, they got to tick off. You know, they got to they gotta see the Tower of Pizza. They got to see this. And they got to, you know, all these places are getting wrecked because people just have, like, a top ten. And they only want to go to those. They only want to go to, like, the top places. Yeah. But they don't want to just wander around the streets of, of Genoa, for example. You know, or some place that, like they they haven't thought of yeah and those are that's where things happen that's where you have these beautiful stumble ins and like for me that's the randomness of it and the newness and that's the excitement you know it's not like the, the best place right it's it's just finding some place it's just amazing that you didn't have didn't see coming and there you are and it's like wow it was a great experience you know i like hearing that that's uh that's a new answer uh for that question so i like that the the, the unknown or the, the yet to come. I yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's life, right? That's yeah. what, can't That's think what you, all the people you, say. You can't think you know it all, right? Because you want to leave yourself open to what's next. Yeah. Well, I'm excited for your next book. And when it comes out, I'm going to be excited to read it. So uh, hopefully it's sooner rather than later. But congrats yeah. on finishing it. Thanks and, so much. Yeah, yeah, it's a really great pleasure to not be able to, <laughs> to, to be able to say I got like... Tomorrow when I send it in, they'll be like, okay, I'm done. Yes. For now. For now. Yeah. And then yeah. the real work begins. I'm going to start but... working on the next one. Yeah. But the, but the research for this one is going to work for the next one, too. So. Okay. It's just cranking them out. Um, I, you know, I'm 70. i got to get moving. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for doing this. I appreciate well, it. Thanks, John. It's always great talking to you. Be on the lookout. When pre-order information for his book becomes available, we'll post about it. That's probably going to be on all of our All About Beer social media channels, which is easily enough at All About Beer. Do you have guest suggestions or something cool happening in the beer space? Tell me about it. You can email me. It's John Hall. That's J-O-H-N-H-O-L-L at allaboutbeer.com or tell me on X at John underscore Hall. That's also how you can get in touch with questions, comments, other guest suggestions, and more. A reminder, go visit allaboutbeer.com. There you can check out our podcast page, the merch page, and read great new content as well as our archives going back to 1979. One more time, don't forget to follow All About Beer on social media at All About Beer. And if you're interested in supporting journalism in the beer space, you can email us at info at allaboutbeer.com 
or simply head to patreon.com slash allaboutbeer. Don't forget, All About Beer has a podcast channel. Search and subscribe on your podcast platform of choice. Steal This Beer still has new episodes every Monday, and the BYO Nano podcast comes out on the 15th of every month. As for this show, Mitch Weber does the music, Jeff Quinn designed our logo, and I'm John Hall. New episodes release every Wednesday, and that's when I'm going to be back again to drink beer and to think beer. See you at Jack's Abbey. <laughs>